Hello, Longview Point. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Micah chapter 5. I'm excited that we get to dive into God's Word together again tonight. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you a story that I came across the other day. It was a story about a Danish king. This king had grown tired of all the flattery from his royal court. It didn't matter what he did. The people of his court were constantly praising him. And so he pushed back at that on this one occasion and said, Am I a God that you were to, to praise me in the way that you are? And they, they didn't answer. And so he actually took them out to the ocean. And there he commanded the ocean waves to stop. And of course, we all know that the waves continued to crash upon the shore, proving that he was not God, he was not divine, and that there were limits to what he was able to do. Today we are studying Micah chapter 5. It is a text about a coming king, the one that we've been talking about for the past few weeks, the coming king who is limitless in what he is able to do. That he is good and he is strong and he is mighty. And this is the coming Messiah that all of Israel is looking forward to. As we look at this text, we're going to see how it ties into the New Testament and see how Christ is the ruler that Micah is describing. And so without further ado, we will look at Micah chapter 5. We'll look at verses 1 through 15 today and really dive in to 2 through 5 the most, seeing who Christ is, this ruler that is to be born in Bethlehem. This is starting in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand. And you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not 
obey. So you see we're talking about this ruler and it shifts into talking about who I, you know, it's from I there. God is talking there towards the end about what he is going to do. But he's setting up this ruler who is to come. This ruler. The first thing that I want us to notice about this ruler is that he is coming from an insignificant place. We look at it and we know Bethlehem because that is the story we sing of Bethlehem around Christmas. We know uh, of this as the birthplace of Jesus. But in this time, this is a small town five miles away from Jerusalem, a tiny village. Yes, David had come from that countryside, from the, the town of Bethlehem, but nothing else of importance had happened there. It was not known for, for anything significant whatsoever. In fact, he has to call it Bethlehem Ephrathah because he's setting apart from Bethlehem in Zebulun, a different town by the same name. But he's setting it apart because something great is going to come out of a place that seems really, really insignificant. Out of Bethlehem is coming a ruler to rule all of Israel. He will be in the line of David, but he's going to be greater than David. The interesting part is that Bethlehem has been conquered by the Assyrians. It will be conquered by the Assyrians. And Jerusalem's not. But yet this is where the ruler is coming up from. The ruler is coming from this small, insignificant town. And the text that we just read is a messianic text. It is a text that, that all the Jewish people, Christians, we look at it and we say, this is a text that is looking to something greater than just a, a future ruler. This is a, a, a telling of a future king, a ruler, a Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one that is going to come and he's going to rule for all of eternity. This is 700 years before Jesus is born. I just think that's so fascinating. I love looking at how the Bible just fits together. You have 66 different books. You have all these different authors, but yet God weaves his story throughout every single text of it. And he brings it to the forefront of, look, yes, a ruler is coming. It may be 700 years from now, but that is my plan. You may be suffering now, but yet I have hope for you still. As we talk about it, you know, we, we can see how Christians would see this and say, oh yeah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We have to, to know that this is one of those texts, but Jewish people did too. Look with me at Matthew chapter 2. Flip over to Matthew chapter 2, and you'll see who Herod asked about where the, the king of the Jews was to be born. Starting in verse 1, and this is one that we typically read at Christmas time, but it's so important to go with the text that we're talking about today. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, which is the same town, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. Check that really fast, okay? He assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He's not going out. Christians didn't exist at this time, but he's going to the chief priests and scribes. These were people who would actually oppose Jesus later on, but yet that's who Herod goes to, and they, he says, okay, where is the king of the Jews to be born? And this is how they answer. Verse 5, they told him, 
in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So the chief priests, the scribes, when asked where the king of the Jews, the Messiah was to be born, they point the people, the wise men, King Herod, to Bethlehem because they know the text of Micah chapter 5. But that's not the only place. If you flip over a few more pages, go to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, there's skeptics there looking in verse 40, and yet they're saying that the, the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. You see, they knew the text as well. The text of Micah chapter 5 had been written 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. But the people knew where to look for this coming king. They knew that it was going to come from this tiny, insignificant, seemingly insignificant town of Bethlehem. As I think about that, how many times does God love to use the seemingly insignificant for, to maximize his glory? I think about Gideon, how he's going into battle and God stops and says, look, you have too many men to fight this battle right now. If you fight this battle with this many men, they're going to think, we're, you're going to think that you were responsible for it. I want you to know that it is me. And so he goes from 22,000 men to 300 men and is victorious because God gives him the victory. God likes to use things that seem to be insignificant. But there's no one that's insignificant in God's kingdom. There's no place or town that people are from that is insignificant to God. He cares for everyone. He has a purpose. Each person is made in the image of God. They reflect His glory. They're the Imago Dei. And they have a purpose. We have a purpose for His glory to live for Him. So as I look, I'm so encouraged to see in Micah chapter 5 this foreshadowing of a ruler who is to come, a ruler that comes up out of Bethlehem, the one that we know is the Christ. But what does he tell us about this ruler? He tells us in verse 2 as well. Let's read it again. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That's such an interesting way to describe this ruler. But he gives us a very important detail about who the ruler is. 
if you look at the very end of verse 2, it says, Who is coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. We have to have a good view of who Christ is, that He has always been. He is from eternity past. There is no beginning of Christ. Yes, there is a time when He is born in the small town where He puts on human flesh, but He is 100% God and has always existed. There's never a moment in time where He was created. Ligonier Ministry in Lifeway, I, I cite this survey that they do every other year because it's so fascinating. It's called the State of Theology, and, and it really just gives an idea of where, what evangelical Christians believe and ask them some key questions about their faith and about the core doctrines of our faith. Well, they ask the question about Christ, or they, they make the statement, and you say either true or false, of is Jesus the first and greatest being created by God? And 78% of evangelical Christians said yes to that question or to that statement, that that statement is true, that Christ is created by God. But that is missing out on the deity and the divinity of Jesus Christ, that He has always been, that He has no beginning, that He is 100% God. We need Him to be 100% God. We need to have that great understanding of Christology, of knowing who Jesus is and having that theology as a firm foundation for us. That he's not a created being, that he's, he existed before he put on human flesh. You see, we need Christ to be God because our sin is against God. And the only way that our sin can be forgiven by God is that God takes on the punishment for our sins. That he, that Christ died on the cross to forgive the sin that we have against him. You see, it's a, a proper understanding of who Christ is helps us to understand God's justice because through his death on the cross, he completely and eternally satisfied God's call for justice for our sin. You see, we need Christ to be God. We need texts like this one who's saying, look, Jesus is coming in 700 years as a human, but Jesus has always been from of old. That he is the fulfillment of the line of David and the covenant and the promise that's been made to David, but he's also going all the way back, the fulfillment of the promise to Adam and Eve that one day one of their descendants will crush the head of Satan. And that is the ruler that we're talking about here. That he is the one who will take on our sin, our shame, so that we can have a relationship with him. He's always been, he is from of old, the ancient of days. That is Christ, our shepherd king. Now you notice that I call him the shepherd king. Because as you continue to read through this text, you, you see the job description that this ruler is given, the description that, that has been given to us about what he is going to do. This is what it says, verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord." 
in the majesty of the uh, of his of the name in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace you see we're given a description of what this ruler is going to rule like and he's going to rule like a shepherd, but not just any shepherd. He is the good shepherd. Look over in John chapter 10. I know that we're looking at different verses today, but just to see how the, the majesty of the text all coming together, that Jesus is who we're talking about here in Micah. But in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, this is what he says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But he emphasizes this point again. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So they, there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, He is the good shepherd. He is the one who lays down His life for His sheep. And as we trust in Him, we are His sheep. The sheep of His flock, sheep of His pasture. As we think about the him as the good shepherd, I can't help but think about Psalm 23 and the characteristics of the shepherd leading the sheep by still waters. The, the shepherd providing everything that the sheep needs. How he loves the sheep, how he cares for the sheep, how he protects the sheep. We'll talk about that some more. But this is a shepherd who is caring for his people. This is a shepherd that Hebrews 13, 20 tells us that he's made an everlasting covenant with his blood for his sheep because he laid down his life for us. What an incredible shepherd king we're talking about here in Micah 5, the shepherd king that is fulfilled throughout Scripture, fulfilled throughout Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and how all the rest of the New Testament is pointing back to that shepherd king that we're talking about today. As you look at, at Micah chapter 5, it tells us a few things about this good shepherd that should encourage us, that should cause us to praise him and to worship him even more. Our heart should be filled today as we're reading this. But it says this here, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. In the strength of the Lord. Can I tell you something about the Good Shepherd? The Good Shepherd never lacks strength. He never lacks strength. 
we could have some of the best rulers, kings, presidents, all those things. But at some point, their strength is going to fail. At some point, for every single one of us, our strength is going to fail. I went out running the other day. I, I, I like to run from time to time, or at least uh, I suffer through it. But my plan was to run five miles. But as I hit that fourth mile, I could feel that I was dehydrated. My legs were tired. I was feeling weak. And I didn't finish that fifth mile. I didn't push through. There was a limit that I hit and, and I couldn't continue on through it. But the thing about this good shepherd that we're talking about today is he never lacks the strength to finish what he came to accomplish. He came as a human. Christ took on human flesh, born in a manger in the town of Bethlehem, but he completed the task so faithfully of the mission that had been put before him. He came into this world to die on the cross, to live a perfect life, die on the cross and conquer over death. And that is what Jesus did. There is never a time when the good shepherd lacks the strength that he needs. He always is there in the strength of the Lord, never tiring, never growing weak, but always strong. He conquered death's sting. He overcame the grave. No temptation that was thrown on him was too much for him as he rejected every single temptation. But he stood firm. And he, in his strength, fulfilled the mission that he had been sent to do. Isn't that so encouraging for you, for me? that this shepherd king, this Christ who we worship, Jesus Christ, born of Bethlehem, never lacked strength, but he is almighty. He also, as you continue that verse, he protects his sheep. Verse 4 says, And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And they will dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. There is nothing formed against us that he cannot protect us from. There's nothing that, that he cannot overcome. The late Alan Emery of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association told a story uh, about a night that he spent in the Texas Plains with a shepherd. That shepherd had 2,000 sheep, and the night came, and he was there. They were by a small fire, and they hear a coyote in the distance starting to howl. And the sheep all stir and begin to wrestle a little bit. The, the sheep dogs, they're starting to growl. Well, the shepherd gets up, puts another log on the fire, and, and the flames kind of kick up when he does that. And Alan Emery talks about how he sees 4,000 little lights He's trying to figure out what it was, and, and what it was was those 2,000 sheep looking at their protector. They weren't looking out at the dangers that were all around them. Instead, those sheep were looking to their shepherd because he, they knew that he was the one who was able to protect them. He was their strength. He was their guard. And that is true for us. When all the, the 
the chaos of the world is going on around us, we need to take our eyes and put them directly on Jesus and trust Him more. Because the last thing that it says here that He does is that He also brings peace. These were people who had been dealing with wars. They had been trying to take the land. They had fought against other uh, tribes who had been valiant warriors as well. Constantly at war. Assyria is at the doorstep. Babylon would come later. But there is a promise of peace. And the strange thing is, right after that, it talks about Assyria and how they will be delivered from Assyria. So there is a peace that's taking place in this present context, but there's a peace for us as well. That we can trust the Good Shepherd. That we can trust the Shepherd King. That we can have a peace that transcends understanding. No matter what the struggles are, no matter what the chaos is, there is a good shepherd who loves you, who cares for you, who laid down his life for you, and there is nothing that can pluck you from his hand. It continues on. That, that, that gives us the, the ruler there. That gives us the, the context. But he, he's working and he's doing something in our lives here. It says in verse 7, then the remnant of Jacob, a small group of people, shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. It's, it sounds the same, right? You catch that between seven and eight? In the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and your enemies shall be cut off. You see, this, this chapter is really divided into three sections again, just like other chapters that we've studied here. But he, the, the way that, that I would interpret this text, the way that this text um, stands out to me, is a lot like 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, mark my spot here, says this. We'll actually start in... Um, we'll actually start in verse 14 and go through verse 17. It says this. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. You see, as you put those two texts together, you see the first part of the text is that we are like a dew, right? We are a blessing. There's a, a church, a remnant, a people that, that the shepherd king has called out as his own, and he has scattered them throughout many nations. And that's us. We are part of that remnant as his church. But our task is to be 
a blessing to people, right? The, the sweet aroma of life to life is the way 2 Corinthians 2.15 puts it, the way Paul puts it there. But it's also warning us about being lions that are showing the judgment of God as well. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 2, death to death. That, they, that when the church is being what it's supposed to be, then the people around the church are faced with a choice of life and blessing or the judgment of God. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, The task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and witness-bearing. The remnant is called to be faithful. The remnant is called to be holy and distinct, to be different from the world around us, that there should be a, an aroma about us that we are the, the people of Christ, that we are the followers of the shepherd king, that we are seeking to live for him with all our hearts. As you look and continue on there, you go into that third section and it's talking about Christ making us more like Him. Talking about the shepherd king, God, ridding us of everything that prevents us from being holy and distinct. Look at what it says to read through it again. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities, and in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. You see, God is tearing down all the images, all the idols that Israel had been putting their trust in. He is telling you, look, don't trust in anything that's going to fail you, but trust in me. Be holy, be blameless because none of these things are going to fulfill what you're looking for. Only the shepherd king can. So everything that makes us look more like this world, he is ridding it out of the land here so that we will trust in him. What is it that, that Christ is ridding out of your life today? Is it pride? Is it jealousy? Is it lust? Is it what gossip, slander? What are we putting our hope in? What are we putting our trust in that is not Christ? Because as you read through this, you realize that anything that we make an idol, anything that we put up on Christ's level, that we put on the throne of our life, then here he's telling us, look, I'm going to cut it off. 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 I will root it out. These are strong action words of what God is doing in the lives of the people of Israel. And it's things that he's going to do in our life as well to make us more like him.
more like our shepherd king. So I hope that you've been so encouraged today that as you read Micah chapter 5, you see how it points to Jesus. You see how he's reigning and he's called people to himself to be a blessing to all the nations, to carry that gospel out to people that we've been given a mission to deliver that good news of his kingdom, to be that sweet aroma to people. But I also hope that it causes you to look at your heart, look at your life, and see what it is that we're trusting in. What it is that we're holding on to more than our King. I challenge you to submit that to Him today. Put whatever it is, even if the good things, the best thing, all that, submit it underneath the authority and power and rule and reign of Jesus. Because He is all-powerful, his name is beautiful, and there is no one or no thing worth worshiping more than Him. So my point for you today is trust in our Shepherd King and submit your entire life to Him. Not part, but all. You know I like to end with a couple of questions for you to discuss with the people that you're getting to watch it with. As we talked about Bethlehem, we talked about how it was an insignificant place, seemingly insignificant place. My first question for you is, have you ever felt insignificant, but yet still seen God use you or felt being, that you were being used by God? Take time to talk about that story about how God has used you even when you didn't think that He could or that He would. My second question for you is what characteristic of Christ as a shepherd is most encouraging to you? As you read through that passage, uh, verses 2 through 5, what is it that you just hold on to that he is all powerful, that he's good, that he laid down his life for us, uh, that he brings peace and that we can dwell secure? Read Psalm 23 together as a family. But take time to think about God about Jesus as our good shepherd. And then finally, is there a part of your life that is not fully submitted to Christ? I challenge you today to lay that at His feet. Some of you may have never asked Christ to be your Lord and Savior before. My, my prayer is that you realize that He is the good shepherd who laid down His life so that you can have a relationship with Him. Don't neglect that. Don't push off trusting Him for another day. But ask Him to be your Savior from the punishment of your sins and ask Him to be your Lord, your King of your life right now, today. But for those of us who know Him, ask Him to, to work within our heart and point to us areas of our life that are not submitted to Him and submit that to Him right here, right now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the beauty of your word and the beauty of the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus we can be saved, that we trust you, that you are the good shepherd, that you love us, love us so much that you laid down your life for us. So Father, help us to be encouraged by the way that your word works together. Help us to be encouraged by 
the great ruler and king and shepherd that you are in our lives and in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that, that our lives are changed because of the study in your word today. That we are more submitted to you, that we trust you more, that we love you more. Because we see your goodness in the grace that you've given us. So thank you, Lord, for being an amazing God who is all-powerful and all-loving. It is in your holy name we pray. Amen.